Our Old Testament lessons today come from Leviticus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 10. Listen for God's word and wisdom to us today. When an alien resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the alien. The alien who resides with you shall be to you as the citizen among you. You shall love the alien as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who is not partial and takes no bribe, who executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and who loves the stranger, providing them food and clothing. You shall also love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I'd like to invite Catherine Fraze to come forward to continue our conversation about 40 and other things and other things. Because it's a communion Sunday, I won't ask the kids to come down, which means that all of you are kids today. So here's my question. Have you ever been in a situation where you're in a group of people, you're at a party, you're at a ball game, you're at a someplace, and somebody comes in that seems like nobody knows them, certainly you don't know them, and they sort of stand in the doorway with that, am I welcome here? Should I come in, look on their face, waiting for anybody to say hello? Perhaps you've been in that same situation yourself, right? Some of us who appear to be very outgoing are in fact not good <laughs> in those situations and are very tempted to turn around and flee, right? So what are the things that convince you to actually walk in? A friendly face, a smile, a wave, right. And so two things. One is uh, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So this is the reminder that we could do those things. But because it's also Lent and we talk about pantry every Sunday in Lent because we're just lucky like that, I want to talk for a minute about what does that look like at pantry. Because pantry, we see hundreds of, literally, of people every pantry Saturday. Some of them we've been seeing for years, and if I'm having a good day, I remember their name. Some of them we've never seen before, and it is a scary thing to come to pantry. It is a scary thing to say, yes, I am, by walking in here, I am admitting that I need the help. So what do we do about that? So the first thing is that we wear name tags because we call all of them by name because they have to tell us their name to check in. And they have told us that it makes them feel better to be able to call us by name. It makes it more human and somehow less governmental, right? Um, what else do we do? We smile. 
we know enough about them, many of them anyway, to say, oh, I see you had a birthday last week, or I see your son has a birthday this week. Uh, when we were doing the outside pantry, we actually sang happy birthday to them. That seems a little over the top inside the building. Uh, but we try to recognize their birthdays. We know special things about them. You know, do you need gluten-free today for your granddaughter? Right? Um, and in another, uh, on another occasion, Debbie's going to tell you some pantry client stories to get, so we can get to know them. So, so those are the things we try to do. Vinny's out in the parking lot most times, and for those of you who know Vinny, it would be difficult to be a less friendly person. <laughs> Wait, no, a more friendly person. <laughs> and the last piece is that we are also rewarded because particularly the clients we've been seeing for a long time are happy to see us. And it makes of a world of difference to me, whether I'm sitting behind a computer doing data, essentially data entry all morning, or whether I am greeting friends and being greeted as if I were one. So my challenge to you children is as you go through your week this week, see if you can be more observant of that person who needs a smile. It may not need any more than that but just something to make them feel more comfortable, to make them feel as though, yes, they are really wor welcome in the kitchen. And um, I have forgotten what day of Lent it is, so I will not quiz you on your homework. <laughs> oh, stop. Our second lessons today come from all over the New Testament starting in the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite you to either read along or close your eyes and listen, but see if you can pick out the thread between these passages. You have heard that it, is, it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, Jesus, say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is telling a story. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Truly, I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. From Galatians, the Apostle Paul says, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. He goes on in his letter to the Ephesians, For Christ is our peace 
In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is the hostility between us. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, which is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ himself as the cornerstone. And finally, from the book of Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing that, some have entertained angels without knowing it. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. As many of you know, our theme for Lent this year is Perfect Love Casts Out Fear. And we are spending each Sunday during Lent looking at a different fear that seems to be motivating us and plaguing us, our personal choices, our collective institutions, our nation, and our world at this particular point in time, if not throughout all of human history. Each week, as Chip and I read and research and prepare our sermons, we find lots of quotes by famous people and lots of others who claim that this particular fear, whichever one it is we're talking about this Sunday, whether it's fear of change or fear of the unknown or fear of failure or fear of death, this particular fear is the most basic and foundational of them all. I've begun to wonder, how can they all be the worst one? The more I read and reflect, however, the more I'm convinced that they actually are all interrelated and that it's actually like a web of different fears that lies at the root of so much of what is not working in our lives and our world today. So today we're tackling the fear of the other, with a capital O, or the stranger, or as it's called, xenophobia, begins with an X. As Chip told us last week, the word xenophobia comes from the Greek word xenos, which is rooted in a fear of the unknown and means fear of the foreigner or the stranger or the alien, someone not from around here, someone who is different from us. This week, I read a cogent little book called Fear of the Other, written by Methodist pastor and preacher William Willimon, who, in addition to serving several churches as pastor in the South and being lauded as one of the best preachers in the United States next to Billy Graham and other notables, was also a professor at Duke Divinity School, dean of the chapel at Duke University, before leaving academia to become a bishop overseeing Methodist churches in the Northern Alabama Conference. In his book, Willimon writes, is there anything more natural innate and universal than our fear of the other. Xenophobia is not only historical, it's biological. Neuroscientists can demonstrate how our brains constantly judge whether the events or persons whom we encounter will hurt or help us on the basis of whether they minimize danger or maximize reward. When we encounter a stranger, there is a small almond-shaped structure deep down in our brain called the amygdala that goes into high gear, one of the most primitive and powerful parts of our brain. Some call it our lizard brain. The amygdala is our fear response center, the seat of our emotions and motivations, and its primary purpose is to detect potential threats 
or danger, and then to regulate emotions like fear and aggression. So when we encounter someone or something unknown to us, Willimon explains this part of our brain functions as it has for millions of years, enabling us quickly to decide whether that person is a possible reward or a potential threat, and then inducing in us the desire to either move toward or away. If all is judged to be okay, we can move toward the person or the situation in safety and openness. If not, this is where our fight or flight response kicks in. Unfortunately, as helpful as this instinct can be at times, it is also notoriously prone to error and making bad choices. In his book, Your Brain at Work, science writer David Rock cites research that shows when we experience a threat, we, one, think less clearly, two, have difficulty receiving and assimilating new information, three, we make mistakes in our perception and interpretation, often coming to false conclusions, and four, we tend to respond negatively to the situation, focusing on the downside and taking fewer risks. As Willimon goes on to say, evolution hardwired our brains to be cautious and self-protective, which made sense in a time when our survival was threatened daily. Today, those once valuable coping mechanisms are the source of some of our most damaging mistakes of judgment, including our sloppy thinking about, irrational fear of, and false consciousness of the other. Our problem is not that we fear, it's that our fear is often misplaced and that we sometimes fear excessively. Too much fear is the problem as we allow our lives to be dominated by the avoidance of evil rather than the pursuit of the good. This sloppy thinking and overreacting, these damaging mistakes are on display all around us. In the struggle of the Jantique shelter to find a new home in Peekskill, in the bathroom at a high school where a non-binary student is beaten for being different and later dies from their injuries. In the fear-inducing political rhetoric being spewed on the airwaves and social media to stoke suspicion and hate and to win votes. In the hoarding of wealth, resources, and opportunities by a few, which has resulted in poverty and oppression for the many and those judged to be less deserving or important than us. In the walls being built in our communities and at our borders to protect us from that evil other who is coming to ruin our neighborhood, steal our jobs, and ransack our American dream. In the wars being fought around the globe, fueled by greed and selfishness, ethnic animosity and lust for power. As Willimon writes, xenophobic, exclusionary fear of the other is more than a matter of preference for people whom we enjoy hanging out with or those with whom we feel the most comfortable. In deep fear of the other, we separate ourselves from others in order to better oppress, exploit, expel, confine, hurt, or deny justice and access to others whom we have judged to be so other as to be beyond the bounds of having any bond between us or any claim upon us. Here's the good news, however. 
we do have a choice about how we respond to all of our fears, and especially our fear of the other or the stranger. Thanks be to God, there's a lot more to our brains than just our amygdala. There's plenty of neurological evidence that we human beings are also hardwired in our higher brain functions for connection and empathy and compassion. And we can, in fact, control or moderate our fears through conscious thought, mindfulness, and training. As Willimon explains, with all animals, we share an innate survival instinct or fear of the other. Unlike most others, we can deliberate. We can decide to fight or flee, to move away or toward, to push aside or embrace. Just for now, he writes, let's define Christianity as the good news that by the grace of God, we do have a choice. In fact, think of God as, think of church as schooling in how to manage our fears. Our fundamental choice as people of faith, is either to give into and be ruled by our fears or to follow Jesus' example and be the human beings that God created us to be, made in God's holy image of relational love, called to follow in Christ's footsteps of welcoming love, and led by the spirit of God's liberating love that truly has the power to free us from all of our fears. You may have noticed that I had a hard time narrowing down my choices for scripture lessons today. <laughs> it was not an attempt to beat you over the head with them. It's just fear is a huge concern in the Bible. So much so that apparently there is some version of fear not or do not be afraid appears 365 times in the Bible. Or as some have pointed out, one for each day of the year. Warnings about fear especially fear of the other or the stranger, can be found from the beginning to the end of Scripture. I chose only a few from the very heart of the Torah, the Jewish law given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai, to Jesus' own words, to some of the letters to the early churches. But these don't begin to include all the stories about God's people being afraid of the other in the Old Testament, or the myriad stories of Jesus welcoming, healing, and teaching the lepers and tax collectors, the prostitutes and the poor, the Samaritans and the foreigners, let alone the fact that for the most part, the only people in the Gospels who truly see and understand who Jesus is are outsiders or others. So over and over again, God's people are instructed and commanded and shown how to love their neighbor as, their sel as themselves, to love the alien and the stranger, to love even our enemies. Because God only knows how quickly we humans can make that jump from others to enemy in no time flat. The love of the other that God commands is not based on some bland sentimentality or mere tolerance for those who are different. No, this love is rooted and grounded in God's love for us. A love that began with our creation in God's image and has continued throughout history. A love so strong that God took on our flesh and blood to become the other for us. 
that we might better know and understand what God's love looks like. A love that we see most clearly poured out for us on a cross as Jesus died at the hands of the other, not the Jews or the Romans, but our hands, all of us who have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, all of us who are not living as the beloved children and faithful disciples God created and calls us to be. In his farewell speech to his disciples, Jesus tells them, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. I no longer call you servants. He may as well said, I no longer call you other, because a servant is clearly other from their master. But now Jesus said, I call you friends. Did you catch that? Instead of otherizing us, Jesus draws us closer, enfolds us in the embrace of his love, and calls us to do the same. William Willimon wrote his book, Fear of the Other, in the lead-up to the 2016 presidential election in the U.S. and right in the thick of the civil war in Syria. And he noted that a subtext of recent debates at that time over whether or not to admit Syrian refugees has been, if we let them in, what's the cost? Will our nation be less secure? Will property values in my neighborhood be diminished? Will these newcomers help or hinder the economy? And while these are not unreasonable questions, he writes, Christians ought to admit that in debates about others, Christianity's default position is hospitality, even as we received hospitality on the cross of Christ. Christianity's default position is hospitality even as we received hospitality on the cross of Christ. Willimon continues, sure, we can argue about how we ought to be hospitable and what steps to take to integrate these newcomers and enable them to thrive in North American cultures. We can be honest about the challenges involved in their coming to and being received as strangers in a strange land. However, as Christians, we are prejudiced toward hospitality particularly for those in need, because that's the way God in Christ treated us, and that's the way God commands us to treat others. Tom Long, who was my preaching professor in seminary, once told the story about his boyhood Presbyterian church in Georgia when a man in shabby clothes ambled into their church during a service one Sunday. Perhaps he was a drifter passing through, or maybe he had jumped off a boxcar on the nearby tracks up to no good, planning to prey on people while their guard was down at church. All they knew for sure was that he wasn't one of them. The ushers stepped aside as the stranger entered. He was handed a worship bulletin, but not graciously. He sat by himself in a pew toward the rear. Throughout the service, the pastor and the worshipers cast nervous glances in his direction, wondering if and how he might disrupt their service. When the offering plates were passed, folks suspected that the stranger might take something out of the plate instead of put something in. After listening to the sermon, the man arose and quietly departed. Though he was a child at the time, Long recalled that after the service, the Georgia farmers stood under the big oak in the churchyard, talking in serious, muted tones. 
They probably didn't know how to say it, he reflected. But everyone knew that God had put our church to the test that day, and we had flunked. The first and maybe only Bible verse many of us memorized was John 3.16. How often do we, in our words and our actions, our choices and our policies, live out of a slightly different version of this foundational verse? A version that sounds more like, for God so loved me and the people who look and act like me, but not those who are other. For God so loved us Christians, but not those Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists. For God so loved America, but not Mexico or Colombia, Gaza or Iran, Russia or China. But that's not what Jesus said. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, the universe, all of it. As Willimon proclaims, it all belongs to God. No one is foreign to his expansive embrace. There may be people who are strangers to me, but they are not strangers to God. There may be those who are enemies of me or my country, but they are not enemies of God. What if God has created us not only with a biological fear of the other, but also with an even deeper will to embrace? God is shown in Christ to be pure will toward embrace. Maybe when we reach out and connect with the other, we are moving toward the life that God intended us to live. When my father was a little boy, he and his family lived a few blocks from the railroad station in Myerstown, Pennsylvania. And my dad can remember times when a stranger knocked at the front door. And it was most often one of the many transients, or bums as everyone called them back then, people with no home or steady job who rode the rails looking for work and a place to stay. And inevitably they would ask for food. My grandmother, who was, for all intents and purposes, a single mother raising four children on her own, had plenty of reason to be fearful and turn them away. But rather than get rid of them as quickly as possible, my grandmother would invite them in and sit them down at the kitchen table and feed them a meal. My dad and his three sisters thought this was all quite exciting to have such scruffy-looking men with their raggedy clothing and unshaven faces sitting at their kitchen table. But for my grandmother, it was merely Christian hospitality to someone less fortunate than herself. If my grandmother were still alive today, I would like to know what she learned from the strangers who came through her front door. What I learned from her example is that being a Christian means inviting all sorts of different people to sit down at the kitchen table with you. We welcome others around the Lord's table today because we too have been welcomed to the table of God's grace and God's perfect love. Or as the Dalai Lama once said, fear and hatred and suspicion narrow the mind. Compassion opens it. Instead of harboring fear and suspicion, we need to think of other people not as them, but us. The witness of Scripture God's commandments and Jesus' words and example are all in total agreement on this. God's perfect love welcomes and embraces all of us, 
As God's beloved children and Christ's faithful disciples, we are called to do the same. Amen.